Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is May 19th, 2021, Malcolm X's 96th birthday. We are pre-taping a show to be aired this Monday, May the 24th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. At KOOP.org, many of the shows are archived at PedroGatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 57th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Pedro Gatos in bringing light into darkness Monday news and analysis since we began broadcasting on Co-op Radio in 2002. Has been investigating and seeking to present genuine truth-seeking perspectives of how U.S. foreign policy impacts majority populations around the world. We also seek to identify other human-generated behaviors that either create or aggravate human misery outcomes in the world that by definition are preventable and therefore reversible. Over the past 18 years, our record speaks to the veracity of our reporting. The impact of U.S. foreign policy in the world, on the world, population, is unrivaled in reach and in impact. Our presumption is that the U.S. population is a compassionate and social justice-driven people, that if we know the truth of the matter, we support policies that promote the most fair and democratic outcomes. The problem is too often we are misinformed by our government and our mainstream media. Therefore, this show is dedicated to critically evaluating all information before accepting it as believable and as worthy for becoming the foundation for building our worldview understandings upon. So stay tuned. Tonight's show is on Malcolm X, Nat Turner, with special guest, one of our country's greatest authorities on black studies, Dr. William Darity of Duke University. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. And today is May 19th, 2021. And we have the great honor of uh, having Dr. William Darity join us for an interview that we will be broadcasting on Monday, May the 24th, 2021. Today marks the 96th birthday of Malcolm X, and we wanted to focus this show on some issues connected to Malcolm X, but also Nat Turner, not well known, but we all should know the horrific nature of slavery, although we could never know it. And Nat Turner's rebellion was in the midst of that. So we will also be asking Dr. Darity to illuminate us on that. But Malcolm was born back in May 19th, 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska. And he went to school in Lansing, Michigan. We're going to fast forward his autobiography. But importantly, he got imprisoned after leading a life of crime and hustling uh, in 
February of 1946. He was imprisoned. He was paroled after six and a half years of an eight-year sentence in 1954. And in 1948 to 1949, while he was in prison, was his conversion to Islam while he was in jail. The Nation of Islam brought to him, I do believe, and much of this can be documented in the autobiography, but a form of strict discipline, moral and sexual codes were puritanical in the Nation of Islam. Personal hygiene was uncompromised. Members had many obligations, but not a whole lot of rights. There was not really a pretense of democracy. And on December the 2nd, 1963, Malcolm was silenced for 90 days, allegedly, for his remarks following President Kennedy's death that many found insensitive. From 1952 to 1964 of March was Malcolm's period of time in the Nation of Islam. And he announced he was leaving the nation on March the 8th, 1964. A year earlier, in 1963, he was appointed the first national minister of the Nation of Islam. Profoundly, what had impacts on Malcolm were, I'm sure, a lot of things, but his visits to Africa and Mecca were very powerful. 1959 was his first trip to the Middle East as a member of the Nation of Islam. Um, He visited the United Arab Republic, Sudan, Nigeria, and Ghana during this trip and made arrangements for Elijah Muhammad's tour Then he came back on a second trip in 1964 of April through May after leaving the nation. And when he he got to Africa, he first went to the Mecca, flew to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, as the start of his Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, which is, of course, obligatory for every Muslim who, who is able. And then he returned again in 1964 to Africa later that year in July to November, and that was his third trip. I wanted to just mention a couple of things. During his trips, people don't, I don't think, appreciate what an international icon he was. During that third trip to Africa in July through November, he was received by seven African heads of state, including President Nassar of Egypt and Julius Nair of Tanzania. Prime Minister Milton Obote of Uganda received him. Jomo Kenyatta in Kenya, the president received him. President Azikwe in Nigeria, President Kwame in Ghana, and President Sikotori in Guinea all received him. And during his last year on this earth, he really had a radical evolution, I would say, of sorts, an accelerated evolution, I might say, during the last 10 to 11 months of his life following his March 1964 announcement that he was leaving the Nation of Islam. That is captured in his speeches, and, and we'll, we'll be talking to some of that later. One of the things that he came to appreciate was that he became no longer like anti-white. He became rather anti-wrong. He no longer was promoting a separatist or black nationalist. Rather, more it was towards anti-discrimination and anti-segregationist. But the main thing was the impact, I think, of his faith that got him to see that you don't judge someone on, on their color, but you judge them on what they do, you know, their behavior. And his words is, you know, what you practice. And as long as you practice evil, we are against you. And he was uncompromisingly against that type of, of violence. So that's kind of a short introduction to, to Malcolm. And, and before I go on, I wanted to properly first welcome our guest, Dr. William Darity, back to bringing light into darkness. Dr. Darity, thank you for making time for us. I know you're very busy and, and so many people are 
interested in in your your insights. So thank you for coming back to bringing light into darkness. Uh, I'm I'm pleased to come back. Uh, this is a, a program that I cherish, and I always like the opportunity to come and talk to you. Well, thank you for those words, Dr. Darity. Dr. Darity, he's a Samuel Du Bois Cook Distinguished Professor of Public Policy. He's a professor in the Sanford School of Public Policy, professor of African and African-American studies, and profoundly well-versed as a professor of economics as well. Some of his expertise areas include stratification, economics, socioeconomic inequality, education and racial achievement gap, and reparations, and really also transatlantic slave trade expertise. I've learned so much from your articles that you've authored and co-authored and that led up to your recent book that just came out in April of last year, April 20th, 2020, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. You and your co-author, Kirsten Mullen, wrote a very important work that sits on my desk and I reference frequently when I have questions. So again, thank you for being here with us. And let me ask you, when we think about the history and the horrific brutality of slavery, that brutality was met in a rebellion in 1831 as the year by Nat Turner and man, woman, or child was not spared in that rebellion where I think some close to 50 or 60 people were, were killed. But the, the significance of Nat Turner and, and some of the biographical issues that you've come to understand about him, can you share that with us? Sure. Uh, I, I was actually thinking in the context of a conversation about Malcolm X that it would be interesting to look at Nat Turner's story in a comparative fashion because I guess to, to a large extent, both of them are treated as, as figures who would embrace the use of violence for the purposes of challenging a violent social system. And, you know, very different indeed from the image that we ascribe to some other advocates of racial justice, like uh, Martin Luther King, who had a commitment to passive resistance and civil disobedience. The perspective or the voice that we hear ascribed to Nat Turner and to Malcolm X is a voice that is saying, essentially, as as Malcolm did at one point, by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Turner actually took up the cudgel and attempted to seek freedom and liberation of enslaved people through an armed uprising. This armed uprising took place in 1831 in Southampton County in Virginia. We are under some impression that Turner and his band of allies had in mind getting to the Dismal Swamp and then escaping into the interior of the Dismal Swamp after they had conducted their their surge. And and I, I think that there is some belief that there were some members of the band that did make their way into the Dismal Swamp, a few, but hardly everyone. And uh, Turner himself never got there and was eventually captured and executed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this was after having led a revolt that did indeed lead to the deaths of upwards of 50 to 60 white people who were members of the slaveholding families of the Southampton County region. I think that, you know, there's an, an interesting dimension of this, which is the question of what documents we rely upon to learn more about the Nat Turner story. 
in the context of Malcolm X's life, I think a heavy emphasis has been given to ostensible autobiography that was actually written by Alex Haley, mm-hmm. uh, that that has become sort of the premier document that people refer to, to, to hear Malcolm's story in his own words. But it, of course, is a, a story that's filtered through the kinds of judgments and decisions that Alex Haley made about what to include and exclude. Mm-hmm. And in somewhat parallel fashion, with respect to Nat Turner, we rely very heavily upon a document that was published shortly after the revolt that was penned by somebody named Thomas Gray, which is referred to as the Confessions of Nat Turner, where Gray says that he visited Turner in his cell before Turner's execution, and he took down the story that Turner had told him personally. We have no way of verifying this, and we have no way of knowing whether there might actually have been such a conversation and whether Gray actually recorded what Turner said accurately. But nevertheless, this is the core document that many people rely upon. I'd like to suggest that if there are people who are really, really seriously interested in scholarship about Matt Turner, that they also rely heavily upon a a volume that was edited by Kenneth Greenberg called uh, The Confessions of Nat Turner and Related Documents. It's a nice compendium of primary source materials on the uprising and on what we have been able to learn about Turner from materials that were written in the period of time that that largely overlapped with the period of the insurrection itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are also transcripts for each of the slaves accused of participating in the rebellion, and that's a source of information, the trial transcripts. Then there's, I think, what I think is the most full treatment that I've come across is a book that relies heavily on local oral histories from the Southampton area of Virginia, and it's a book by uh, F. Roy Johnson called The Nat Turner Story, it's a self-published book, which you know might give you pause, but my impression is that the documents there are accurate, and it's a major extension of William Sidney Drury's 1900 book, The Southampton Insurrection, where Drury actually was, uh, as a descendant of the planter class, was uh, actually writing what constituted a scathing critique of, of Turner and the revolt. But Johnson's book really is an attempt to look at what folks in the Southampton County area were said to know about the revolt and uprising. The last preliminary point is much of what we think we know about Nat Turner also is linked to a work of fiction. William Styron's Pulitzer Prize winning novel. And, you know, I always remain somewhat somewhat stunned that this is a book that received the Pulitzer Prize. But nevertheless, it did. And this is a book that's also called The Confession of Nat Turner, and it is based explicitly on a fictionalization of the content of Thomas Gray's alleged report on Turner's confessional statement on the eve of Turner's execution. But the the, the real contest is over whether we view Turner as a hero or whether we view Turner as this villainous madman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. Turner does indeed come out of the Old Testament prophetic tradition. He is sometimes referred to as Old Prophet Nat, and he was seeking vengeance for great evil. So in in that sense, some people view him as somebody who uh, had some kind of mystical attachment and was mad. On the other hand, I think that the more accurate portrayal is 
that this is someone who built a movement, built an up, uprising that was aimed at a forceful taking of, of racial justice. Yeah, that's very interesting. I was reading up on him somewhat. He seemed to be someone that claimed to have religious visions and those types of things, and he was preaching and very articulate, I guess, with those visions and his upbringing and some of the stuff. But I, I have not, I, I want to be clear, I'm not a, in any way a scholar on Nat Turner. I did find that the, the fear that he must have instilled in his uprisings, because they did take women and children as well, to my understanding, at first glance. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. you know, you know one, of, one, of the, one of the things that intrigues me about, you know, this, this notion of taking the lives of innocents is that women and children were just systematically and consistently abused under the system of slavery. Right, right. So it's very interesting that when someone engages in an act of resistance, People are horrified because the lives of women and children also were taken exactly. uh, when, when they were being taken on a daily basis under the system of slavery. Well, that, that's my point. You know, yeah. for me, what was really Im- impressed me was be careful what you reap, because when it comes back, you're right. It's portrayed in, in a way, of course, that's, that's unfair. But at the same time, that violence was something that was the only language that perhaps slaveholders would even pay attention to at that time. And they were, of course, like you say, wrecking that type of violence on a, on a daily basis for hundreds of years in the slave trade. So I get that. I thought, though, for Malcolm, I, I don't think it's fair to portray him as a violent person preaching violence, you know, by any means necessary in my interpretation. And actually, in his own language, he spoke about using violence against violence, that if a robber comes into your house, one of his famous quotes, and you run him out with a gun, you know, that doesn't make you a robber or a violent person, so to speak. So now earlier in his, you know, that was part of the evolution process, I think, too, was that earlier, certainly, you can find a lot of remarks and indications that would lend a lot more credence to the to the more violent disposition of, of Malcolm. But I think that's intentional in order to kind of defray attention from his his later and when i'm saying later this is like after the nation of islam this is like that last maybe 10 months nine months and 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 again i think you can find it and i have found it in in speeches uh, or, or you know his oratories that are now fairly well available for those that are interested but also i thought and i wanted to ask you about this because the transatlantic slave trade It seems to me that you have Columbus discovering Hispaniola in 1492, and you have basically, at that time, what, the Spanish and the Portuguese were the main colonial powers, right? And so they came and they enslaved and they were reaping the wealth and benefits from that enslavement. And the wealth of their nations were built on that enslavement. And then the, 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 the British and the French became, and the Dutch became the next wave of colonial powers that came to the New World as well. And in fact, if you go back and you look at the wealth that was created by slavery, I mean, the French, they owned the Louisiana Purchase with some 15 states up here in the United States, all the way up to the north and into Canada. And they they had that in order to provide food and uh, other supplies to their St. Dominique 
colony that, that later became Haiti. Following the first successful slave revolt in the history of the world, in which in 1804 overthrew the French and its colonial allies, in which St. Dominique became Haiti, but the economy was devastated. And St. Dominique, once the producer of three quarters of the world's sugar and half of its coffee, was now ravaged, but not before, as the most profitable colony, largely built off the backs of slaves, the fortunes of the French colonial empire. You know, the British, they famously, they had the West Indies and, you know, Jamaica, Barbados and Trinidad and, and of course, the U.S. colonies and all of that. But that particular period of time, I think it was the East India Company in the 1600s, that, that started in the South Asian colonies. Their imperial endeavors, 1800s into the 1900s, by 1922, the famous statement, the empire in which the sun never set, basically were colonializing the whole world. And, and I guess what I'm trying to get at is that there's this enormous wealth accumulation by these nations that you can document and clearly show came largely off the slave trade. And your work, which is around a lot of things, but particularly from the economic perspective of your concern that I have found to be very accurate about the incredible wealth inequality that still exists today in the African-American community compared to the rest of the country of some, what, 3% of the uh, of the wealth in the United States, yet 12 to 13% of the population. So these structured types of inequalities and stuff, I think that's where Malcolm's was going. He was going with this understanding that there is this systemic problem that will just not allow people that are oppressed to break out of it by their own means. That's really what he was writing about and talking, and not writing about, but talking about in that last month of his life or so. And I just wanted you to maybe elaborate on the primacy. I mean, there's other issues, but uh, of wealth inequality, and perhaps if there's really any real chance of that correcting itself without a drastic systemic change. And some of your work is around, you know, promoting uh, reparations and those types of things to try to address some of those issues. Can you share some thoughts on that? Yeah, but but before I do, I want to return to something really important that you said about Malcolm X and about the fact that he did not engage in a life of violence, although the the point that I was making is that that's how he is frequently portrayed. Right. But, you know, I would I would argue that in fact the actual practices that Malcolm X undertook, particularly inclusive of the period where he was a minister in the in the nation of Islam, actually were fairly consistent with protest that was nonviolent. And to the best of my knowledge, he never killed anybody who was white, right? Right. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely, so, yeah. You know, his, his, his advocacy of the option of using violence was primarily as a matter of self-defense. And this is what distinguishes him, I think, in a relatively sharp way from Nat Turner, who uh, was willing to undertake an act of violence for the purposes of liberation. And self-defense, which is more of a response to the violence that is executed by others for protective measures, is somewhat different from engaging in violence as an offensive act, uh, and I mean offensive in the, the forward act, the leading act in an effort to try to respond to conditions of violence by right. trying to destroy them. So right. I, I'm, 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 I'm agreeing with you that yeah. there, there is a difference between Malcolm and, and Nat Turner in terms of the actual use of armed force. Well, who knows? If Malcolm was in Nat Turner's 
shoes at that time of, in history, his tactics might have been different. <laughs> they might have been. You know, uh, that, we, that, don't, that's, we don't know, and there's no, no way we could ever know. No, uh, and, and let me just also comment, if I could, that what Malcolm said was, the only thing power respects is power. He would say things like, if you go after somebody with all this power, uh, with a bunch of love and this and that and the other, things are just not going to change. So the power can come in a lot of different forms. It can come in political power. It can come in you know, military power, obviously, those types of things. But he was really tuned in to the nature of the beast here in this country, I believe, from reading his and studying him for so long. But but um, but please go ahead with your comments. Yeah. So your question really was about the nature of how inequality has been has been crafted, particularly inequality in in the world that was made by the Atlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are two levels uh, of of the inequalities that we need to pay attention to. And one level is the divide that has been created by rich and poor nations that are predominantly white and predominantly black. That's one divide. And then the second divide is the racial divide that exists within countries, especially the countries that are the major centers of of imperial activity. And so, you know, here I would include the type of racial divide that exists within the United Kingdom or the racial divide that exists in the United States. Mm -hmm. And these divisions find their origins, both the divisions in terms of countries, uh, levels of income, levels of opulence, as well as the divide in wealth among individuals on the basis of race within these countries. Uh, they find their origins in the transatlantic slave trade and its ramifications. So, you know, there there's absolutely no question in my mind that the economic growth that the United States underwent from the formation of, of the nation as a slave republic in 1776 into its own industrial revolution at the end of the 19th century, that this was a, a process that was fueled heavily by the kinds of resources that were generated and extracted from forced, coerced labor of Africans who were imported to the United States in chains against their will. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Darity, we need to take a quick break. We'll be right back with our special guest, Dr. William Darity, right after these important messages. <laughs> 